I wrote a lot about silence. Certainly 10 years ago, I was writing a lot about silence. And in the past two years, I would say I wrote about it less. So there's an interesting paradox. And what's that about? Um, I thought about it a little bit. Um, Maybe the necessity of writing about silence is strongest when silence seems to be absent. I live in New York. I'm from California originally. I went to school out in the middle of the Redwoods and silence, both silence and and darkness. And obviously there are ways in which we tend to connect those two concepts in our minds aren't things that I thought about really much at all until I moved to the middle of the city. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I mean, I certainly enjoyed the silence um, at the beginning of the pandemic period. You know, it was one of the, among many minuses, it was one of the pluses. And it wasn't just uh, an acoustic silence, I would say. It was also more of a possibility to be contemplative and, um, you know, to think about life in general and to think about one's own specific situation and to do things that you can't normally do. And it's a kind of quietness, I guess, is maybe more accurate as a, as a term. But that was that was what I felt. And I must say, um, in all the weirdness and the strange loneliness of it and the fear of it, it was um, very enjoyable, that aspect. And I, I didn't feel I had to struggle with the concept of silence somehow. I mean, just there it was. There were no cars. You know, there was very little activity and um, there wasn't that kind of constant communications overload or commitments, you know. So everything kind of quietened down and uh, I thought, yeah, this is is what I've been talking about. (laughs) How would you define the difference between silence and quietness? Well, I think there's a number of different answers to that one. Um, one is that silence, the implication is of a an absolute condition, um, which, of course, doesn't really exist. Um, but it's a conceptual point. I suppose it makes us think about a complete absence of sound. And then quietness is is relative. And it's also very much a state of mind. So you can feel a sense of quietness even in certain noisy situations. You can feel a sense of quietness within yourself or with other people when you're in their company. And if you're listening to music, certain music can feel quiet even though it may be quite noisy. So, you know, there are many contradictions in it. But I I think, you know, the idea of silence is almost a philosophical 
point and quietness is a subjective point more but they overlap obviously quietness is something more akin to the state that we try to achieve with meditation is that fair to say i guess so i i mean i i don't meditate or maybe if i do meditate i don't know it <laughs> i i engage in certain activities that have a sort of meditative aspect to them um and there is a there's certainly a kind of quietening down but for the last 10 years i've done a qigong class every week um or every week that i'm here and the stress in that class is that it's not um when i say stress i mean the emphasis is is not that it's a meditation it's it's a kind of way of holding bodily stances and being conscious of, of your body um which is rather different to meditation so um there is there can be a kind of a real quietening down during that but then on the other hand you can become very acutely aware of your surroundings so if in recent weeks the weather has been kind of very changeable sometimes very stormy and so on then you can hear that and you're really listening to it even though you're focusing on what your body is doing so you know it's it's a again there's this kind of paradox of which i always talked about in in relation to silence the paradox of silence or listening to silence is that you become more and more acutely aware of those sounds that do exist so as you grow closer to silence it becomes louder and louder <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's an interesting paradox i think the other paradox in in terms of you know both meditation and and your own practice is the idea of of awareness in meditation obviously you don't want to be focused on distractions but that's all in service of being more mindful and acutely aware and being in the moment yes i mean they do say that you should be able to meditate by a busy road and the classic example from ancient china or maybe japan is is the monk meditating by the waterfall so you know to deliberately put yourself in a very noisy situation and then meditate is is seen as being the test of um whether you can actually meditate um but yeah mindfulness i don't know i mean awareness i think your capacity to become aware grows if you if you play certain kinds of music which depend upon listening so improvisation which i've been involved in for the last 50 years or so um yeah you become very aware of what's going on around you and you're you're listening more and more to detail and to movement and to dynamic shifts and to grain and texture and all of these different qualities and conditions and um yeah inevitably that affects your hearing in general i think 
have you noticed a, a measured difference day to day? I think it's such a gradual process, you know. It's it's a bit like getting older. You you don't see it moment to moment, but you know, one month you look in the mirror and you think, "My God, I'm older." <laughs> um, it's uh, it's this idea of transformation. So, I think it's the same with listening awareness that it happens over time and maybe a long time. And if I listen back to tapes of myself playing with other people, say in the early seventies, then I think there are moments I can actually hear myself not listening carefully to what's going on. You know, it's it's like, how did you miss that? In terms of almost an analogy of being a car on the highway and missing your on-ramp or missing your exit? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, exactly. That is the kind of thing that can happen in improvisation, that it's coming up, it's signposted, there it is, but you drive straight past it. And you think, how did that happen? But it happens through a lack of attentiveness, a lack of mindfulness. And I mean, these things happen anyway. You know, and how many times do we have conversations and we think somebody gave us an opportunity, an opening, a cue to enter into a difficult subject, but we missed the cue probably because we didn't want to go there. Or maybe we were too wrapped up in our own thoughts and, you know, whatever, that that we missed it. Obviously, something that I think a lot about in the conversations that I have just in life and here and, and generally, because I think we've all been there waiting to get our question in and um, not, not, not listening and not being open to the other person. And I suspect that I'm not really much of a musician myself, but I suspect that um, when you do first start that process of improvising and playing with people, you're in your own head. And you're really focused on on how you sound and the performance that you're giving. And that doesn't open you up to others in the way that perhaps you would like to be. That's exactly right. I mean, I when I was teaching uh, improvisation classes, that's exactly what I used to find, that people were just so wrapped up in their own focus in what they're doing or their own anxieties or their concerns about their sound, you know, whether certain things were happening with their computer or whatever it was they were using, and you're not listening to anybody. And so the process of teaching is trying to open up that facility. I must say it doesn't necessarily come with being a musician. I remember years ago I interviewed Lamont Young, and the answer to his answer to my first question lasted, I think, forty-five minutes. <laughs> it's just like this. My job here is done, right? Just I'll go yeah. make some tea, and you can That's you can right. take this yeah, rest yeah. of the way. Yeah, you just press the button and uh, and leave, and 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 so you know this unceasing flow, and where you're just waiting to be able to jump in, you know. To but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I think certain kinds of music at least can help you develop that that faculty for sure and uh, of something i i used to say to my students when i was running improvisation classes was that 
you know, I'm not necessarily training you to become a an improviser, you know, as a kind of career. If you stick with it, you will find what you learned useful in other situations. So, you know, being able to listen, I think, is a... Not everybody has it. Um, and those who do have it... Um, certainly can negotiate certain situations better. When you say situations, you're not just referring to music. It sounds like you're referring no, to life. No. I'm, I'm talking about life, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also I'm talking about listening in the broadest sense. You know, maybe not just your ears, your hearing, but, um, you know, your your bodily response to the world and... Um, what you notice and what you don't notice, you know, as you, as you said, mindfulness. Yeah, so that to me is listening, um, you know, as a complex process. And if you can, if you can listen, if you have that awareness, then um, yeah, it can help you in a lot of things in life. I mean, that's all very well to say, but you know, we've all been in situations where. <laughs> We know in retrospect that we didn't, we weren't listening, you know, in relationships, friendships, whatever, uh, professional situations, you know, we just weren't hearing what was being said to us. It's also a very underrated part of teaching. And I say that uh, as someone who has had his fair share of teachers who have not been good listeners. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. And if you teach yourself, then I think it's something you have to constantly remind yourself. Am I listening? You know, because there's a, after some years of teaching, uh, you can get into habits and you've got a, a kind of routine, you know, just to survive. And, and you develop ways of dealing with people, with students. And um, all that can lead to a situation where you're not hearing anybody or anything. And of course, it becomes acutely obvious the longer you go on, because the weird thing about teaching is that you're getting older and your students are getting younger. I mean, they're not getting younger, but they're getting younger in relation to you. So, so, you know, the gap between their experience, their understanding of the world, things that they're excited by or bored by, become more and more remote to you as you go along so your your capacity to listen to them and you know what they're um what they're responding to what they're you know uh indifferent to is is extremely important if you want to keep um a good relationship with them. I've certainly felt this in, in myself too, feeling like there needs to be hard and fast rules around music, around art. And I, and I think that's what you're speaking to, to a certain extent in terms of their own context changing. You're hopefully not staying too stationary, but probably that's unavoidable to a certain <laughs> extent. Yeah. Do you find that as you've continued teaching that you're, 
notions around sound and music have become more alien to your students? Well, I retired last year. I was a professor at London College of Communication, and I was there for over 20 years. So that's a good... And I retired at the age of uh, 72, which is, you know, quite old to be in an institution of mostly young people. But on the other hand, I found one of the things that happened to me every year was that I learned a lot from the students I was teaching improvisation and develop good relationships, friendships with some of them and, and actually work with them now. So that is as much a benefit to me as it was or is to them, or hopefully is to them. But I, th- I think you do become conscious of it. I mean, I remember I was a couple, of, um, probably three, four years ago, I was teaching a a group of students, they were in the first year and they'd, they'd only recently uh, started their course. And one very young guy said to me, I've been talking about this and that, I can't remember what, and he said, I just don't understand modern art. And I thought, what kind of question is that? You know, I, I haven't, I don't think I've heard this expression, modern art, for for years, you know, and, and it was the kind of thing my parents would have said. And that's probably also the kind of art he was talking about. You know, it probably was abstract impressionism and it probably exactly, were, were yeah. these things from 50, 60 years ago. Exactly. So, you know, to hear this coming out of the mouth of a, I don't know, 20 year old was just extraordinary. And I had to, I, I did a double take, you know, and in those situations, you have to be very careful because you can end up ridiculing a student, you know, who's probably sensitive and probably very conscious of how he's treated in that situation. And, um, you know, so you have to take a deep breath before you answer that kind of thing. But it did shock me. I mean, it was like, oh, okay, that, that whole thing has come round again, has it? And so it's not simply that you're keeping up with their particular tastes, you know, what bands they like or whatever it is. It's also that a kind of conservatism can come back around and something you thought was, you know, gone and in the past, consigned to history, is suddenly a live issue. I mean, I think we've seen that in all kinds of situations in recent years, you know, that things that we thought had gone away have come back again. But, yeah, it's... uh, it's very much um, part of the job, you know, a demanding part of the job to remain alert to how your students are changing and, you know, certain things that they reject because to them it, maybe it represents their parents, certain ideas, you know. I mean, even even the idea of improvisation itself could represent a certain kind of view that was or um, something that was very prevalent in the 1960s and 1970s. So in itself, it's identifiable with 
parents and old stuff and ancient history. So, <laughs> you, you know, you have to deal with that. I'm somewhat sympathetic to this statement. I, I, I likely wouldn't have said it in the same words, but to the statement, I, I don't understand modern art. And I wonder if, you know, in that context, he was also using that to include, you know, what we would deem experimental music, because these are things that you need, you, you, you need a guide, you know, you need some, you need someone in your life, or maybe it's a book, but you need somebody to explain the context to you and to, to bring you around to it. Taking music and popular music, there are certain things that I think we grew up hearing and have accepted as what pretty music sounds like or pop music sounds like. And it can be difficult and abrasive to come around to some of these other ideas. That's absolutely right. I remember when I was at school, uh, maybe 15 years old or something, and I had a great teacher who I'm still to some degree in touch with, a guy named Michael, Michael Evans. And I was looking at Picasso's painting of the three musicians. I said to him, I, I don't get this. And he gave me a kind of five, ten minute sort of analysis of what was going on in that painting. And by the time he'd finished that brief analysis, it was like, I get it. I get it all. You know, it's like a light came on in my head. And yeah, it was like a light came on in um, my head. And I think, okay, it probably would have taken me a few more years or whatever, maybe even a few more months to get to grips with this myself. But having him talk about this work and the context out of which it arose and what was going on with it and where it sit, where it sat within Picasso's development and so on was just priceless. And uh, yeah, you do need, um, you need guides from time to time. And if you have good guides, then you're very fortunate. I'd watched a performance that you gave and I don't remember the specific details, but you came on ahead of time and said, I don't usually give a preamble or I don't usually uh, explain it, but there were, there were a certain set of circumstances that required you to give some additional context in that. And I always sense this, a bit of a tug of war in a lot of artists between the impulse to let things speak for themselves, but also maybe hold the listener's hand to a certain extent. Yeah, I think maybe you're talking about a performance I did uh, at the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, which was around, it was in an exhibition by an artist, Barry Flanagan, who's no longer alive, and it was referring to a performance I'd given with a poet performance artist called Carlisle Reedy and a musician I used to work with, Paul Burwell, and we performed in the 1970s in a Barry Flanagan exhibition and so it was you know it was complex it was it was not you know you couldn't have gathered any of these details if I'd just gone ahead and played so yeah on the whole I, I would tend to just um, start playing without any explanation but in that on that occasion I felt yeah we're in a gallery we're in a, 
the middle of somebody's exhibition. I'm using recordings of music by one person who is now dead. I'm using recordings of a, a person speaking who is kind of reclusive, so she's not here. And, you know, people don't see her around. And she's maybe a little bit forgotten, but, you know, she's an interesting artist. And so it seemed necessary to, to offer that kind of guidance. But I think, you know, you have to pick and choose and you have to do it carefully. I, I The thing I don't like is when people kind of come on and they tell you exactly what's going to happen. Not just what's going to happen, but how you should feel about it and, and the effect that it should have. <laughs> that's right, yeah. And to some degree, that that's a part of... Um, art curation these days you know putting together an exhibition and each work has a little description and an indication of what was going on with the work and maybe what they thought you would feel about it well that to me is very contentious you know but because there are many different ways to think about what an artist was doing i just this morning i just finished writing a catalogue essay about a work by a Canadian artist, Stan Douglas, um, and the work is called Luanda Kinshasa, and its its initial inspiration was a Miles Davis record on the corner. And Stan Douglas's works tend to have a lot of layers, you know. So you could you could come into the gallery and you could take it at face value and you could enjoy it. But then, you know, you go a little bit below that and there's another layer and then below that there's another and so on and so on, you know. And there's all kinds of things going on that you have to be very alert to, to notice. And so, you know, my job writing an essay like that is to kind of unpick it. So if you go to the show, I mean, the show is going to be in Oslo. So if you go to that show in Oslo and you see the work and it's a bunch of musicians playing a riff or a kind of one chord jam, you could think, yeah, this is nice. I like this. But then if you read my essay, then you'll see that there are many reference points. I suspect that um, you're probably like me to a, a certain extent in that hearing about a, a new artist or, you know, seeing something in a gallery, I immediately want to run home and read everything about it. If it had that effect yeah. on me, you had said that, You'd alluded to, to I, I, I guess, a, a change in presentation when it comes to galleries. You use the words these days to describe how galleries approach works. Is that, has, has there been a fundamental transformation as far as the way art is presented now? I think so. I mean, particularly in um, what you might call public galleries rather than private galleries. I think with private galleries, it's still kind of mysterious. You know, you have to do your own work. But um, although very often a private gallery will print out a kind of information sheet, but in public galleries and museums, I think they're much more visitor-friendly, I guess is the term, term they would use. Um, you know, museums used to be sometimes quite difficult places, which made them really atmospheric and strange very often. But they 
they didn't make too many concessions to the visitor. Whereas now, there's a lot of effort goes into it, um, you know, to make. And, and I noticed that a few weeks ago, I, I took my granddaughter to the British Museum. She's six. And I was a little bit worried that she might be bored. But actually, everything is laid out in such a careful way. And it's very atmospheric. And, you know, there are just these little things about the way you can look at things that make the whole thing exciting for a six-year-old. So, yeah, I think that has changed, definitely. Yeah, I'm old enough to have a certain romanticization for radio, turning something on and hearing a piece of music and realizing that you might not ever hear it again. And that is certainly something that is missing now from the conversation. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I can remember experiences listening to radio where a piece of music came on and uh, it's just like, it's something extraordinary coming out of nowhere. And your response to it is intensified by that particular circumstance the fact that you weren't expecting it and you don't know what it is so yeah sure i i agree um and and so it becomes more and more rare where you experience those those surprises but then on the other hand i subscribe to a a uh, streaming service called Mubi, which uh, I don't know, you probably know it, but it's kind of what you might call art house films, and they have a new one every day. And two nights ago, I watched uh, Jean Vigo's film, La Talente, and I don't know why I'd never seen it before. Uh, and, you know, because it's supposed to be one of the greatest films ever made if you take any notice of that kind of evaluation. But I was just staggered by it. You know, I was really just shocked by it. And, you know, you mentioned going to an exhibition and, you know, finding an artist you like and going home and researching it. Well, that's what I did. You know, I went on YouTube and I found a conversation between Eric Romer and Francois Truffaut discussing the film which was great, and, you know, researching Vigo and um, the film itself. And actually, it's a, it's a shock that at my age, you know, coming up to 73, I can experience something like that, you know, that something I've never come across before and that, you know, it dates from 1930, so it's been around long enough for me to catch up with it. So why I haven't seen it, I don't know. But what a pleasure, you know, what an amazing thing to experience something that affects you that much. And it's slightly different to what you're talking about because, you know, I knew what I signed up to when I (laughs) made the decision. Um, It wasn't like it was a mystery film. Um, And then... You know, as it was progressing, I thought 
I must know more about this film. And of course, it's easy for us to to go about that these days. You know, you, you immediately go online and you go on YouTube and whatever, and it's all there, or some of it's there. So it is a bit different. But yeah, that sense of surprise is, is much more of a rare thing. Truffaut is an interesting case, and I, I wonder if you feel a kinship with him generally. And certainly there are examples of this, but uh, fewer than I think you would suspect of artists who are also supporters of the arts and are also critics and will also discuss other people's work in depth. There tends to be uh, a lot of siloing when it comes to that. And then obviously you found two distinct but connected careers in being, I wouldn't say a critic, but in being, you know, somebody who writes about music and who creates music. Yeah, I think Truffaut is, a, is an interesting example, an anomaly. And when you hear him talking about La Talente, he he's, you know, you can tell he's also a critic. The way he's able to analyze the film and contextualize it and you know, the way he knows everything about it, all the actors, and, <clears throat> it, it, you know, it's a real pleasure to listen to. But it is a rare thing, and people are still, to some degree, suspicious of it. Why is that? <laughs> well, it's, uh, I think it's still this romantic idea that the artist should be a kind of inarticulate idiot who's a, who's a ge- genius at what they do, and the critic is this kind of remote figure who has no idea how anything is really done but they have a capacity to write and I think actually if you know how records are made then it's advantageous you know if you know what the experience of making music is like with other people then it's advantageous and at the same time if you're able to analyze music then that can be advantageous too although I can see the potential drawbacks as well. In my own career, as somebody who has written about music and art, and my primary job is writing about technology, I constantly wish that I had not just the vocabulary, but uh, a level of experience that I don't have in the creation of, of these, these, these processes. I can approach things as a writer, but I feel like I'm missing some pretty key elements to the work if I don't have the theory or the language. Yeah, it's it's certainly a very particular experience coming out in front of an audience, you know, and, and knowing that you're going to play and not really knowing what's going to happen. And, you know, there's that feeling, momentary feeling maybe that this could go terribly wrong. And that particular experience is, well, you can feel it as a writer as well. You know, you can feel yourself as you're beginning to write. You, you think certainly as an interviewer, absolutely. I because I've had yeah. that happen. I've <laughs> I've tried to interview those brick walls that you mentioned before, and it's a <laughs> it's a terrible experience. Awful. Yeah, I interviewed Brian Wilson once, and it was just absolute torture. You know, it was it was so so difficult. You know, you know, there's something in there, but you just you don't like, like with him, especially. There's something in there, and you just don't you don't have the keys to unlock it. Yeah, I mean, the keys have been thrown away long long ago. So, and, and particularly if it's somebody like him, you know, that you more or less idolize, you know, and you're so in awe of their work, and and there's just nothing you can get out of this situation. So, yes, I agree. There's that 
sense of trepidation, anxiety before you start an interview like that. And then it can go horribly wrong and you feel just terrible. And similarly, you start to write a piece and there's just nothing there. I mean, I I had that last year. I felt um, so I had a practice at one point and then I was commissioned to write a catalogue essay and it was just torture, you know. I mean, the words were coming out one by one, more or less. And so, yeah, I think performance anxiety can affect anybody, really, whatever their occupation. There's the obvious case of something that has been commissioned, whether it's writing an essay or a piece of music, which I know you've done commission work as well. And I assume that the nature of that is different than generally if you're going to be making an album or writing a book. Are, are those two processes similar for you from the standpoint of amassing the pieces, the, the ingredients that go into them over time? There are similarities, yes. There are big differences too. To some degree, it depends on the method you use and the technology you you use. So if we're talking about me making a kind of album in which I put everything together in the computer, then there are, there are very strong similarities in the sense that if I'm writing a piece or a book, I tend to make notes. I don't really prepare. You know, I don't write out a schema which I'm going to follow, but I do make a lot of notes and I research things. And in the same way, if I'm making a record, I'll probably make sounds and work on transforming them and assemble like a a library almost. And then you have a way of beginning which I always feel is very important. Like, you know, beginning to write a text, an essay. It's incredibly important for me to have a good sentence at the beginning. You know, and if I get a good sentence, then often I'm often running. If I don't, then (laughs) I'm stuck. And it's the same way with music. I'll begin with a sound, maybe. And then it just develops and I'll add things to it and I'll record things specially for it or I'll invite somebody to come in and do something with it, you know, a singer or an instrumentalist or whatever. So there are definitely parallels in the process, but clearly they are also working from different areas of the brain. So there's a different feeling about it. And a different, you know, if you're writing, you're working with language. And so it's it's overlapping onto that whole area of life, um, which is different from the musical side of things, which is, unless you're talking about songs, is, is largely nonverbal. And if, even if you're talking about songs, a lot of it is probably going to be non-verbal. So, yeah, there are big differences, and those differences are, are very interesting. How we make connections, I suppose, between those those two very disparate areas of life. We discussed a little bit how being a musician 
has positively influenced your ability to write about music. And I'm wondering how much it's a two-way street in that I suspect part of the reason why there is a separation for a lot of people is because there's a concern that being too analytical about being an artist can ruin the purity of making art. Yeah, yeah, there is that belief. Although it's very unusual to come across an artist who's got nothing whatsoever to say. I, I do know musicians who are very reluctant to talk about what they're doing. But as a musician myself, I'm very used to sitting around with musicians and talking about ideas. And then they're very free-flowing in what they talk about, what they like, what they don't like, or who they, who's what they relate to or not, and who are their influences, and so on and so forth. You know, and very often they clam up if they're faced with an interviewer asking them questions. So that's maybe just a general suspicion of somebody who's being analytical about them and a resistance. But even then, that's that's not everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to say is that the technological aspect of it, you know, that if I'm sitting here with this gray and black box, which is doing things for me, and I'm working with files, then a file is a file, right? I mean, there are many different types of files, but they're still files. And, you know, you open files in slightly different ways, but not that different. So that compression, I suppose, of the the tools you use, the activity, the nature of the activity is has made a massive difference. You know, we're not talking about violins and quill pens anymore. Although actually there's a, (laughs) you could argue that there's a close relationship between a violin and a quill pen also. But it's, you know what I'm saying, it's slightly different. But I think that improvisation has been very important to the way I write. You know, as I said, I don't really plan. So I assemble a lot of thoughts, maybe writing them down in a notebook. And and then when I start writing, things hopefully move from one thing to the next. And I can write in kind of quite large blocks in an improvised way. And then I'll stop and I'll have to rethink or, or, you know, do some more research or whatever or consider what I've written, but it has an improvisatory feel to it. I'm very interested in this idea of music improvisation as far as these instances that I had heard you describe in other interviews where in some cases you had never met the musicians. In some cases, you know, you weren't familiar with their work. That is in a way sort of the ultimate nonverbal communication, how much of an impact does that have to collaborate with somebody on the spot who you're really just meeting for the first time? Yeah, it happened to me recently, actually. Um, Not the last gig I did, but the one before that. And I was asked at the last minute by John Butcher, saxophone player, if I would uh, dep, as musicians say, (laughs) for somebody else who was supposed to be on the gig, but who had COVID. 
So, I mean, that's a common story at the moment. But um, the other two musicians, I not only had not met them, I didn't know their work. John's request came in kind of last minute just because of the nature of getting COVID. And so I had to make a decision, what do I pack? (laughs) Because, you know, I, I have a number of different setups that I use. Um, I'm always trying to change up or refresh my setup, the the things I use in a gig just to keep myself interested or slightly off balance. And normally I would make a decision based on factors I know. But in this case, I thought, wow, I don't know what they do. So I looked at a few things on YouTube and that didn't help me that much, so I just worked on instinct. And actually, it was a beautiful gig. It was it was fantastic. And, you know, I think for everybody, there was a kind of unsettling. But as soon as we did the sound check, it was, there was this feeling, oh, okay, this is going to work. And then you feel confident, you, you know, but I think you have to feel a sort of base confidence. And, you know, I mean, certainly I have that after doing this activity for over 50 years. I have that base confidence. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to continue. And and also a confidence in other people. You know, that coming back to the beginning of our conversation, that they're going to be listeners. They're confident that you're going to be a listener and you're going to respond and they're going to respond in intelligent and stimulating ways. This idea of of being off balance is a funny one. And I I do think it relates to that. What we were discussing in terms of being a teacher, putting yourself outside of your comfort zone, lest you be too sort of caught up in your, in your old ways. You do need that base level of confidence just to stand up in front of people on stage and, and perform something. But why is it important to throw yourself off balance? To some degree. Well, I think habit. You know, that human beings by nature are habitual for very good reasons because survival to some extent depends on habit mixed with improvisation. And a sense of adventurism can grow out of habit, you know, in the sense that if certain things are habitual in your life, in other words, comfortable and known then that gives you a platform from which to go and have your adventures. And I think in the field of art and writing and music and so on, habits accumulate over over time in your life. And there are various traps. And one of the traps is audience expectations. And another one is success. I mean, somebody who becomes very successful, an artist, say, or a musician, you know, it becomes impossible to do anything else. They're in a trap, really, and it depends on their personality, whether they're comfortable with that trap or whether it becomes a source of bitterness and frustration. And for me, I I always felt that improvisation is, is about challenging yourself. And the strange thing that we find now that the music has a long history or a longish history 
is that you can become very habitual. You can do the same thing every single time. And some people will enjoy that and you can enjoy it. But it's not my approach to life, let's say. Um, I'm not comfortable. Sometimes I wish I was, but I'm not comfortable with just settling with one thing, settling down to that and then just doing a thousand versions of it. I always want to find something new, find variations. I approached you to speak, I mean, obviously based on wanting to talk to you and appreciate your work, but also you, I posted something on, I think, Facebook about some reissues of some uh, albums from, I think, the late 90s. And as somebody whose work is so tied to improvisation and live music, it must be interesting to go back and revisit this document from multiple decades ago. The Obviously, there's music that you create that's intended to just sort of exist in the moment and vanish into the ether. Maybe somebody will be recording it and post it on YouTube, maybe not. Is the approach dramatically different when you sit down and put something on record? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I, on the one hand, I've got the reissues from, as you say, the late 90s, 96, 97, coming out on vinyl. But then I've also been working on a much bigger project, which is... Um, rehearsal tapes and recordings made uh, in the early 70s. So a lot of them on cassettes, you know, and um, that's a huge project. Things that weren't made to be shared widely necessarily. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's going to be like a 10, one of these ridiculous lush 10 LP sets with books and the whole work. So that's been a huge amount of work and, and very weird for me. You know, it's very weird going back to that point in time and you're dealing with music made by people who've died and, you know, you have complex histories with everybody and a lot of the stuff you've forgotten is just too long ago and the documentation is patchy. And then at the same time, um, and and also... You know, the the lowest imaginable technology, you know, these kind of cheap cassette recordings. And then you go to the 90s music, which was made in studios, obviously. Um, At that time, I was composing, you know, using sequencing software, um, taking that into the studio, mixing that with live musicians. So you've got a whole different, more complex technological scenario and working on those two projects more or less at the same time was very strange partly because of the differences between them and the the difficulties they both threw up but also because you're dealing with your own past so you're revisiting who you were at that time and everything associated with it so you're kind of dredging up the emotional feeling and and all of the difficulties you were going through at that time as well. I don't know. It's very strange. I mean, I think it's kind of dangerous almost, you know, that you can get drawn back into this nostalgic feeling. 
I would maybe even take that a step further as somebody whose work is so tied to the ways in which you push yourself forward and are constantly trying to do new things. It must be strange to not enshrine yourself, but to, to, you know, to, to go back and to revisit some of these old works. It is. And it's interesting, you know, because I've got no objections to recording work or, you know, anything like that. But my musical partner of that time in the early 1970s, Paul Burwell, he did develop this kind of aversion to recording. His argument was that recording is a kind of shadow of a real event, which of course is true. That's undeniable. You know, the complexity of a real event in space is um, very, very different to a recording that you're listening back through speakers. I think about that, and I I used to say to him, I understand what you're talking about, but if you don't record your work and release it, then nobody knows what you're doing. You know, so there's this pragmatic aspect to it. You know, that if you want to work with audiences, then, okay, you can say I'm purely a local person. You know, you're like a village person who plays to their family or friends or, you know, passers-by. But it's very hard to maintain that fantasy in, um, you know, current situation. And I think what I used to say to him, you know, that you're in danger of being completely forgotten, overlooked, has become true. So he has friends who are still alive who work hard to keep his legacy in view, and that's partly what this whole project is about. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's it's almost like you're making a deal with the devil, you know, if, if you get involved in the whole business of recording. But I can't see, given our situation, that there's really an alternative, unless you're happy. Yeah, and and I think it connects back to that the, the museum thing we were discussing before, where you said it's a, this new phenomenon where they're giving you all the context, they're bombarding with it you you with it up front, and there's a reason they're doing that. They're doing that because they want people to come through the door, because people have to come through the door in order for the museum to continue to operate. So there there are there are just compromises that we need to make in life to, to whatever principles and principles that frankly, you know, that I, as I'm getting older, that I'm realizing may have been held in a somewhat arbitrary fashion that we need to, to give in in order to keep moving forward. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And I, if I think about his life, you know, he, he died in appalling circumstances. He was, um he was he'd become alienated from everybody around him and um y- you know the situation was just really distressing and um you couldn't help feeling that he he created this situation in which there was no way out of that and it, you know that uncompromising attitude which was something i guess he and i both really admired when we were really young, you know, in our our 20s, early 20s, um, can become just a a cul-de-sac, really. 
and unless you want to die really young, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe he would listen to the work I do now and say, well, you know, there's something artificial about it, you know, that I'm working with computers and I'm working with ways of assembling music that are alien, but maybe he wouldn't. I don't know. I, I made it, I made a, a record. I can't remember the date. It would have been in the 2000s, early 2000s. And I used some of his playing on the record, you know, but I was obviously assembling it digitally in the computer. And he was interested. You know, he was kind of interested in the process and interested in the possibilities. And I think it's a pity that he's not around now to, to say to him, look, in a live improvisation context, you could be flourishing, but you could also be getting involved with this other way of making music, which can be very, very interesting and which can combine the two approaches. That's not going to happen because, you know, he died. But, um, I mean, I think from my point of view, I find these two strategies, if you like, really fascinating and the way they connect with each other and the way they differ from each other. <laughs> 